Welcome everyone. This is week 10 of the Gospel of John. And we've got uh, 13 weeks, so we've got this week and three more weeks to finish up. So I'm going to have to speak fast or you're going to have to listen faster. I don't know which one that's going to be here. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again this evening for this time together and for the Gospel of John. And we thank you for the emphasis it gives us on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful now as we're studying what's coming up to be his uh, death and resurrection. We, we exalt in this. We're so thrilled that we're a part of that because we didn't choose you, you chose us. And, and therefore, uh, we are beneficiaries of your grace in our lives. And we're thankful for that. So pray that the Spirit will open our eyes to the truth that we look at this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, chapter 17 tonight. Um, we're looking at uh, the prayer of Jesus. And uh, we said Jesus has left the upper room with his disciples. I uh, said so we don't know exactly where that's at, but some people put it there <clears throat> on the south uh, east side of the map there you see there which is really what's uh, the western hill we might say you can't tell the topography of there obviously but uh, there's actually two hills with a valley in between and uh, there's actually three valleys around here there's a valley here called the Kidron Valley and a valley here called the Hinnon Valley which runs across we get the name Gehenna from it because they burn trash there. So it's like the place where people, they burn, you know, Gehenna is a place of burning. So it's a word that we think about as hell. So the Gehenna Valley runs all the way through there. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll see these. But there's also a valley that runs right up here. It's called the Central Valley, or some other called the Tropian Valley. But that's been filled in, so you can't see it today. You don't see any valley, but there was. So all this right here was one hill, and it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, there was valley on both sides, so it, it wasn't easy to get up there. You know, it was hard to, not flat land. And then there's a hill here that's also got a valley here in this central valley. Um, so it was over here somewhere, we think, that the uh, upper room, and now they've left. They're going to, across the Kidron Valley, eventually here, as we'll see, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. Um, and now we have this prayer of Jesus. Uh, when preachers preach on this, they'll sometimes say, well, this is the Lord's Prayer. You know, we have the Gospels, you know, that we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. That's, preachers like to say, well, that's the model prayer. It's not really, he's not really praying it. He's just telling us how to pray. But this one is, he's, he's actually praying it. And, uh, and this is the longest prayer uh, of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And he's praying it before certainly the most difficult and climactic moments in his life. His betrayal his, by Judas, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion that's coming up, as we'll see. Uh, so let's look at the prayer here, the, 
prayer for himself. He says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that you may, your son may glorify you. After this refers to the farewell discourse that we discussed in 13 through 16, in which Jesus, should be Jesus there, prepared his disciples for his departure. Christ's motive in prayer was his own glorification. This is not an end in itself, but will lead to the glorification of the Father. Uh, now this glorification that he's talking about is what John talks about constantly. This glorification is his fulfilling of what God wants him to do, which will be his death, burial, and resurrection. And that will glorify God. Uh, this significant time that had been in his consciousness from the beginning of his ministry. So I won't go back, but he talks about this, what's coming. He knows what's coming, obviously. <laughs> he talks about it. And we've said that the disciples don't never really pick up on this fully. That's arrived. Time for his death, exaltation, glorification, really, which is his exaltation. Jesus desired to set forth God's perfect wisdom and righteousness by accomplishing the divine plan of redemption. So the Father is going to be glorified because this is going to allow lost people to come to God. Now, we know lost people came to God in the Old Testament, but Romans 3 says they were sort of saved on credit uh, because they really didn't, there was no basis for getting into heaven uh, except the death of Christ, His sacrifice, His propitiation. So this is going to allow lost people like us to come to God. Um, so it's natural that he would pray for himself, uh, but he's primarily concerned, as we see here, about glorifying the Father, the mission that the Father has given him to do. Verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you, had given, you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Son glorifies the Father by exercising the authority the Father granted Him to bestow eternal life upon those the Father has given Him. This brings glory to the Father because it reveals the love and compassion the Father has for human beings. Christ had been exercising authority from the Father to grant eternal life to men. He had brought many to trust Him, a lot of people had been saved through his ministry. And as they had come to know Christ, they had been brought into relationship with God. This knowledge of God through Christ, Jesus Christ is the essence of eternal life. For Jesus, remember, is the life, he says in John 14, 6. So eternal life is really knowing God. It's, it's, uh, it's not simply information about God, but it's a relationship. So we, 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 we know God, we have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, that's really the essence of what brings us eternal life. That is eternal life, to know Him. It's not so much about living for, for eternity, it's really knowing God. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there was a famous book by a theologian by the name of J.I. Packer called Knowing God. We probably have it in our resource book there, thing there. But, and the emphasis on that was when it comes down to it, we talk about people who are saved or lost, people who have accepted Jesus or have not accepted Jesus. But the truth is, 
we either know God or we don't know God. <laughs> and uh, if, you know, if, we're, no, if we're saved, we, we really know God. We have a relationship with Him that unfortunately lost people don't have. They may think they do, but they don't. Verse 4, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Say, Jesus mentioned another way in which he glorified the Father. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work. He came into the world to carry out the work the Father gave him to do, and the Father was glorified when his work was accomplished. This work, which involved revealing the Father, which he did through his life and ministry, culminated in giving himself on the cross, glorified the Father by revealing his character to the world. The world, the work of revealing the Father through his life and ministry has come to an end. It's coming to an end. And the final act of this revelation will, will come in his death, his exaltation, his glorification, his resurrection. And this would be the means of him returning to the Father. He's talking about, I've finished the work, I'm going back to the Father, but there's a path. And that path includes the cross, his death, and his, glory, his resurrection. But then he'll be returned to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. Because as the gospel started out, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning. Before time, before God created time and space. The prayer for the disciples now, 17, 6 through 19. This is the main heart of this. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. So Jesus spoke of his ministry to his disciples. Jesus, the only one who has ever seen God, made him known to his disciples through his words and actions and his person. His disciples were once like everyone else part of the world, but they were chosen out of the world by God. Of these chosen ones, Jesus said, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. They belonged to the Father because He chose them and He entrusted them to the Son that He might convey His word to them. They showed that they belonged to God by obeying that word. And so as a result, Jesus said, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. The words Jesus spoke were words his father gave him to speak. His disciples accepted these words and so distinguished themselves from those of the world who disputed Jesus' claim to speak the words of God, saying instead, remember, Jesus was demon-possessed on a number of occasions. Jesus then said of his disciples, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Their faith was certainly not exemplary, as subsequent events reveal, but they did believe in Jesus and accepted the revelation he brought. This was enough to show they belonged to God. So we'll see that uh, you know, these, these men are truly saved, these disciples, and others are truly saved. But that doesn't mean people can't uh, temporarily uh, deny the faith, you know, I mean under pressure, you know, I mean, if a person is tortured, 
you know, they may say anything under torture. And, you know, we don't know what we would do. We might say, well, I would never deny Christ, but, you know, if you were tortured to death, you might, you might say that. You know, you might, the pressure would be so great. And now Peter doesn't face that, but he faces, he, he's afraid. <laughs> he doesn't want to be associated because Jesus has been arrested. He's afraid for his life. And so they get courage eventually, you know, obviously. Uh, they, they, they become very bold. And they're willing to die for the faith, ultimately, as we'll see. Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me and for they are yours. Notice this always in song. The Father gave them, gave them. God chooses us. Remember, we, didn't, we, didn't, we don't choose him. He chooses us. Now, we do choose him once he chooses us. <laughs> uh, you know, we, first, we love him because he first loved us. So God acts first in salvation. He shows us that we're sinners and depraved, and he draws us to himself, and then we choose him. He makes us willing. Uh, so when Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world, he's not indicating a lack of interest in lost men. On the other cases, he showed his compassion for the lost. Luke 13, remember he talks there about, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you. You know, he, he, he has many occasions where he comes to seeking to save that which is lost. He's, he's in, he's, he is, God has compassion on the lost, and Jesus does. But now he's praying specifically for his disciples who would be the messengers to reach the lost world after he left it. So Jesus is praying for these people because they're going to have a tough time here. They're gonna, it's going to be very difficult for them when he dies. I mean, it's not, it's not tough for us. We know the story. <laughs> we, we, we got it, you know. But, you know, you can imagine they followed this guy, this, Jesus, for three and a half years. And he's said all these things. They've seen this. And then all of a sudden he's dead. He's, you know, is that, is that the end of it? Uh, they don't really quite believe the resurrection. Remember, they've, they, 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 don't, they don't quite fathom that. But that could really be true. Jesus says, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and the glory has come to me through them. Uh, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus makes three petitions for his disciples. His prayer was prompted by his imminent departure. His departure would occur through death, resurrection, exaltation. First quest was protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. This is a prayer for unity, which he prayed was not, it's not organizational unity, but spiritual unity, analogous to the very unity that, that God in which the Father and the Son share a spiritual oneness of nature. And so believers experience this through the Holy Spirit as they are made sharers of God's life. Everything has to be interpreted in context. <clears throat> I mean, that's the, forgot to put that verse up about the Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and so forth. I would have gathered you, but you were unwilling. But, you know, here's 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and 
precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. desires. So we're correct to interpret this as um, when he says we're participating, you know, we have escaped the corruption, uh, we have participated in the divine nature. We, we obviously don't want to interpret this to mean that uh, we share in the divine nature in every respect. We're not becoming gods. We're not becoming in that sense. But we do share in the sense that um, um, while we're not morally perfect, we, we begin to share these moral qualities that God has. Uh, we participate in the divine nature. We don't become gods. Uh, so we often talk about when we're saved, we receive a new nature. You know, that's what we're talking about here. A new ability, a new capacity. We are changed so that we have new desires. Uh, our, our nature is different than it was before. And that's what Peter is talking about here. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here, this unity with the Father, this spiritual relationship with the Father and the Son means that we uh, share in these kinds of moral attributes that God has. We value righteousness and holiness and love and, and so forth that, that God does, these morally excellent qualities. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe so that you... Uh, so that uh, kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has law, been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of, this, of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So the second request was to protect them from the evil one. Christ himself had been the chief object of satanic attack and had served as a buffer for the disciples. Consequently, all of them who had been given to him had been preserved. Of the twelve, only Judas was lost, and he was not one of those who had been given to Christ by God's election, for his defection had been predicted long ago um, in the Psalms and so forth. Uh, now, that, now the disciples were being left in the world to perform a task for Christ. It was a world that hated Christ, would also hate them. <clears throat> Jesus therefore prayed that they would be preserved from the clutches of Satan. So, you know, this is hard stuff because... You know, who doesn't want to be loved? <laughs> no one wants to be hated. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, our neighbors don't say that. We hate you. They may say we like you. We, you know, you're a nice person. But ultimately, you know, the unsaved are just going in the opposite direction. They don't really love the things we love because if we, when we tell them the truth, it's condemnatory. It says, you're going to hell, friend. I mean, that's what it says, and that's not a pleasant message 
that anyone wants to hear. So they're not gonna they're not gonna like that if you say that. They don't, you know, you talk talking about exclusivity. If you just it's fine if you want to be religious, but if you say Jesus is the only way, <laughs> that's gonna get you in real trouble these days. You just can't say things like that. It's just it's hate speech to say Jesus is the only way. Can't be. So Jesus is praying for, for even for them and for us too. He's interceding for us and because uh, we, we face a difficult situation here while we're left here on earth against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sanctify them, verse 17, by the truth. Your word is truth. Remember, remember sanctify means to set apart, basically. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So Christ sets himself apart for this task and so forth. The third request was to sanctify them by the truth. It would be accomplished by the word of God. Sanctify them by your word. So we often turn to this verse because when we're trying to figure out how do we grow spiritually, uh, how do we mature? How do we, which is sanctification, growing in holiness? Uh, it's through the Word. As the disciples live for God day by day, the application of God's truth to their lives would have a purifying, a sanctifying effect, as it would call sin to their attention and cause confession and restoration to follow. Well, that should be a capital B there, shouldn't it? By this means, they would be set apart from sin and consecrated, consecrated to the ministry to which Christ had called them. Jesus himself sanctifies, that is, he sets apart himself apart to do the Father's will, which in this immediate context is a sacrificial death uh, on the cross. Well, then we see the prayer for the church. This is similar praying for the disciples, now praying for a larger group. My prayer is not for them alone. So now he's going to include you know, us too, the church. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that, we, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this last section of Jesus' prayer includes all who believe, all who are to believe. His prayer was that all disciples, past, uh, present and future, might be one, a oneness model upon his oneness, is on oneness with the Father. So this assumes, obviously, that the witness of the original disciples is going to be effective here. Because he says, you know, I pray not just for these disciples, but for those who will believe in and through their message, so we can be assured that, you know, this message will have its effects, it will do its work, the Word will work, uh, this will prove effective, and it has, you know, for 2,000 years, which is, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, it's not an absolute proof of the truth of Christianity, but it's certainly a kind of confirming thing that I mean, false religions can prosper, but the fact that uh, a religion or a truth or a faith that uh, uh, 
began with, a, with Jesus in Jerusalem who never wrote a book, never lived outside Palestine, you know, was never world famous or anything, uh, yet he turned the world upside down in a sense, you know. So it does speak, we think, and it's, it's, a, it's a, certainly evidence of the truth of, of his message. He says on, on in verse 22, finally, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. In this context, the glory the Father gave Jesus is the revelation of himself that Jesus was to communicate to his disciples. By receiving that revelation, they came to share in the glory of the oneness like that existing between the Father and the Son, secure in the Father's love, the same love with which He loved His Son, believers will be able to express and proclaim the Father's love to a dark and hostile world. Finally, verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, through the Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that he, the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Christ prayed that believers might be with him and behold his glory. This looks ahead to the great consummation of redemption in which believers have been resurrected or raptured and will see Jesus in the full glory of his deity. The final request was that believers might share the Father's love. The Father's love for the Son was a source of, of course, unique satisfaction to Christ. Our Lord realized that the strength and blessing that the, this love provided might be fully realized by men. It was God's love that sent Christ to die for them. And for those who respond in faith to that love, the warmth of the Father's heart is entered into by the believer in the deepest sort of spiritual communion. All right, I'm going to rush on here because uh, we've got a lot to cover. Let's talk now about the Passion victory, the crucifixion, the arrest of Jesus. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So he's leaving. I just put an arrow there. From Jerusalem, he's going across the Kidron Valley into the garden. So this is looking east, so where that arrow was. We're looking from the Temple Mount, the, what's called the Golden Gate there. The temple is at the bottom. You're looking east. There's the Mount of Olives, and there's some olive trees. We'll sh show you a close-up there. That road along there is where the Kidron Valley is. And, um, I mean, it doesn't look like there's much height there, but there is, it's really steep there. It's just the way the picture, it flattens it out, and so it doesn't look that way. But originally there was, you know, water that would run through there when it was, it was, uh, it would be a water running through there during w rainy seasons and so forth. And that, and where that road is today, that's kind of where the valley is today. Um, and, uh, so, you know, right down here at the bottom is a cemetery. Um, this is a Muslim cemetery right here. So you can't do any 
you can't do any excavations there. I mean, the Jews would like to excavate that area. They'd like to excavate a lot of places on the Temple Mount, but they can't do any excavations there. Um, you know, to do to see what's see what's really underneath there. I'm sure, it'd be interesting. Um, so there you get a view of the valley. So you're you're at the you're on the south looking north. So you see the temple up here. You can see how you know steep this is here. There is a valley here. There's the Temple Mount where we were looking. You know, looking east to the Mount of Olives, as you can see. And that's a what you see on the right there. There's how that's a Arab village called Silwan. There, but there's the the valley that runs through there. And the Kidron Valley comes around here to the south end, and then it becomes the Hinnon Valley, and it just goes around. So it's just really one continuous valley there um, up to the Mount of Olives. Um, and um, here is... Um, those olive trees that we kind of saw in the distance. And there's some very old olive trees there that I don't, don't really go back to the first century probably, but go back shortly after that, they say. So they'll take, if you ever go to Jerusalem, they'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a church, church there now, a couple of churches there built on the, the hill there where a garden is and so forth. So that's the area, the general area we're talking about there, the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll say, after the events in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples made their way toward the east side of Jerusalem. Going outside the city, they crossed the brook Kidron to the Mount of Olives, on whose slopes was a garden known as Gethsemane. It had been frequently used as a place of meeting by Jesus and the Twelve and probably had served as a lodging on previous nights, if you look at Gospel of Luke, you'll see that um, there's discussion of that. Jesus was obviously not attempting to escape from his enemies, for Judas knew exactly where to find him. Verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Remember, Jesus says in Greek, I am. In Greek, you don't need to say a he at the end of it. And so remember, this is, this is another, these are some of these I am statements we saw earlier, you know, where a few times we know Jesus was identifying himself with God, I am, that I am in the Old Testament there. And he says, I am, and they drew back and fell to the ground. The resting party consisted of Judas, a band of Roman soldiers, and some temple guards from the Sanhedrin. So remember the the temple had their own police force, their own guards uh, who, was, who were, who were uh, 
led, who were uh, commanded by the captain of the temple guard, he's called. So they had their own soldiers there, but they had Roman soldiers here too from Pilate. Uh, there was also a group of priests and elders, probably Sanhedrin members. The party came with lanterns and torches in case Jesus should try to hide in the garden and with weapons to overpower any resistance. As they approached, Jesus stepped forth from the shadows and presented himself. The kiss of Judas, Judas presumably occurred at this time. Remember from Matthew says, the accounts there in the gospel say, Judas told his betrayers that the man I kiss... Remember, the person I kiss, that's Jesus. So you'll be able to identify him by a kiss. So apparently John doesn't... What's interesting, many times here, and we, I should have talked about this more, but John, and we'll see here, John records a lot of things that are not in the synoptics. And he doesn't bother to cover things that are in the synoptics, which makes you pretty sure he wrote later. He assumes you know the synoptics here because he just tells you, he doesn't tell you what they tell you often. doesn't go over that ground. He maybe summarized quickly, but then he'll tell you a lot of things that, that only he as an eyewitness you know, could remember and talk about here probably. Um, so um, when Jesus identified himself as the one whom they sought, the group fell backward and to the ground. This appears to be involuntary. That is, they didn't do it because they wanted to. And so to some degree, supernatural. It's hard to know what's going on here, but it sounds you know, like supernatural something. They just kind of fell back to the ground. It certainly wasn't you know, just that he said, I'm Jesus, I'm he. You know. there, had, there seems to be something more here. As the group approached, Jesus stepped forth from the shadows and presented himself. The kiss of Judas, say, I'm sorry, I got wrong place here, appears to be involuntary and to some degree supernatural. The startling effect... Uh, showed clearly to the disciples that Christ's death was wholly voluntary, for he could not have been seized if he had willed otherwise. So they, you know, if you're watching this, you could see these soldiers fall back. They really couldn't take him unless he allowed himself to be taken. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Our Lord revealed his majestic control over the situation by his actions to safeguard the disciples from arrest or injury. By making the soldiers state twice that it was Jesus they were told to seize, he made it clear that doing any harm to the disciples would be going beyond their orders. As John, our writer, looked back on the event, he saw the physical protection of the disciples as contributing to their spiritual safeguarding of which Jesus had spoken in 1712 when he prayed for their safety, remember? He understood that at this time their incomplete faith would not have been able to endure this sort of persecution. So Jesus is singling himself out, trying to you know, not draw attention to his disciples, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The power of Christ's word and the reaction of the soldiers gave Peter courage. And he struck out violently with his dagger-like sword. This word sword is probably a kind of a short, not a big long sword, but a 
shorter kind of sword. Um, so uh, he struck out violently with his dagger-like sword. Peter's action could have seriously compromised Christ's reply to Pilate. Later on in verse 36, uh, you know, he asked him, are you a king? You know, and he says, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. And so, you know, that, and so he's, uh, uh, you know, this cutting off the servant's ear would compromise that idea. So I think that's why, Je there's one reason Jesus healed this servant right away was there's no harm done. My servants don't really fight, although Peter Peter did, got ahead of himself here. Uh, Jesus commanded, put your sword away, you know. So this is not, you're not supposed to do this. I got to drink the cup the Father has given me, which is my death and so uh, that, that, that has been the Father has given me to do. So uh, he does this miracle. Uh, you know, the miracle here is probably why Peter wasn't arrested because... You know, you'd think you cut off the high priest's servant's ear. You think, well, hey, we're going to arrest this guy. He's committed a crime here. He's cut off his ear. So probably, um, um, so uh, um, that uh, that may be why one reason why Jesus healed the, the man. You know. Um, Luke, uh, Luke alone mentions the, the healing here. Uh, you know, he cut off his ear, and Jesus says, you know, put away your, your sword. Uh, but it doesn't say anything about the healing here. But uh, um, the Luke, Luke, uh, Luke's account uh, talks about the healing here. Um, none, of the, none, of the, none of the synoptic gospels mention Peter as the attacker, which is interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though Luke talks about he healed his ear, uh, they don't mention that Peter did it. And people speculate, well, maybe they don't mention it because when the synoptics were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter may have still been, was probably still alive, and maybe you don't want to name him because maybe they would take revenge or arrest him or something like that. But now this is probably much later and Peter is dead, at least from what tradition we know Peter died in the 60s in Rome. Uh, tradition says he was crucified there upside down in Rome and uh, we assume that's probably right. Um, so this maybe had been, Jesus did, at least that's one reason. Um, he had died by the time this was written. Well, then the trial before the high priest, 18, 12 through 27. First is the appearance before Annas, 18, 12 through 14. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. If we can get it back. Okay, now I guess I got to go back to proclaim. So, are we back? Are you back? Okay. So, uh, 
we're looking at the uh, Garden of Gethsemane number one, and then two, it says the palace of the high priest. Now, we don't know exactly uh, where this was, uh, where the palace of the high priest was. They think it's here, based on some archaeology and other things here on the western hill, what we call the western hill. Um, and I'll kind of refer to this, how he's taken back and forth, Jesus is, as the, the night progresses here. So I said, Annas had been the high priest from 86 until he was deposed by the Roman governor, uh, Valerius Gratus, in AD 15. Five of Annas's sons, one son-in-law and a grandson, eventually occupied the high priest's office. Annas thus remained a powerful force in Jewish politics, and it's not difficult to understand why Jesus should be taken before Annas first. Annas was still considered the high priest by many Jews because they didn't accept his dismissal. They just, I mean, he was dismissed, but uh, he was still the high priest in the minds of many people. So they bring him here. The Jewish leaders want to bring him here first. Uh, Caiaphas, who's mentioned here, uh, so Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas that we talked about. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas and had been the official high priest since about AD 18. He was removed from his office by uh, Vitellius in AD 36 or 37 after, of course, after these events. Both Annas and Caiaphas maybe lived in the quarters at the same house. So uh, remember, Jesus goes back and forth. We don't have all of it here in the Gospel of John, but you look at the other gospel, he goes back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas. He's taken back and forth. They probably lived in the same house with a very large house with a courtyard. That's the most reasonable thing. Uh, the Middle East custom of erecting large residence around a central courtyard makes such an assumption quite reasonable. The fire where Peter warned himself seems to have been in the same, uh, been the same in each instance of the denial in verses 18 and verse 25. The presence of a female dormcomer makes it probable that the events did not occur at the temple, but the high priest's residence. So there wouldn't have, there's a doorkeeper here <clears throat> who's a female. She wouldn't have been at the temple, on the temple mount. So they didn't go, you know, to some place on the temple. This is somewhere else, and many people think it's around this particular area in Jerusalem. So we see now the first denial of Peter, <clears throat> 18, 15 through 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. Nope. <laughs> it was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Peter and the other disciples, many people suggest John here, the writer of our a gospel, followed the arresting party to the high priest's headquarters. 
all the disciples at first had fled. I didn't, we didn't read that, but if you read in Matthew, when Jesus is first arrested, they all just take off. Remember, Jesus says, I'm the only one. Uh, who are you coming for? It's me. You know, don't, don't mess. These men haven't done anything. Well, they flee, Matthew says. But now two of them have come back. Because of the unnamed disciples' connection with the high priest, he was able to gain access to the grounds for himself and Peter. The unknown disciple is said to be known by the high priest. And the word unknown here suggests, you know, more than just I know of him. It suggests more than a passing acquaintance. Uh, you know, so it, it, this is a little mysterious here. Uh, <laughs> it is mysterious, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I won't try to. Well, I might have to eventually here, but I don't know. I won't do it right now. Um, so uh, this is a little mysterious because we wonder how could he be known by the high priest? Hard to know. Now, many people mention that uh, the disciple John, John here, in Mark's gospel, it said that his father, you know, was a fisherman, had people who worked for him, that he had a business and he had people who worked. So it's maybe possible that his, his father was of some uh, wealth, some, some means, and therefore may have been acquainted with the high priest. That's the most likely scenario here. I see here, as Jesus was being interrogated in one of the rooms off the courtyard, Peter joined the servants and officers warming himself by the fire. Peter joined the group to make himself comfortable as well as less conspicuous. The servant girl's question was stated so as to expect a negative answer. You aren't one of his, this man's disciples too, are you? For Peter, it was apparently simpler to go along with the questioner, giving the answer he was expected to give and one he probably felt would be safer. Then we see the examination by Annas. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Annas asked Jesus about his disciples' his teaching. He wanted to get some evidence to use at the trial before the Sanhedrin. The Jews did not have much of a case and eventually had to resort to false witnesses. If you read Mark 14, they, they, they have these false witnesses who accuse him of all kinds of things, but they, of course, contradict each other, it says. In a formal Jewish hearing in the first century, it may have been illegal to question the defendant. It was later on, we know, in the Talmud, and it may be, have been uh, illegal. And that's similar to our law. I mean, you can take the Fifth Amendment. You, can't, you don't have to incriminate yourself. You, know, you don't have to testify against yourself. And in Jewish law, you don't have to testify against yourself. You don't have to say anything. So it may have been illegal here. A case had to rest on the weight of testimony of witnesses. So apparently Jesus should not have been forced to testify against himself, and therefore he challenged his interrogator to ask those standing around, for it was public knowledge who his followers were and what they had been taught, what he had taught them. He had not been secretive in his ministry. So Jesus didn't, main one, he didn't maintain one message for the congregation, or for, the, for, the, for the disciples, and one message for public consumption, one message for private. He didn't have a message for secret you know, followers or anything like that. You know, everything he said was in the public arena. 
in the synagogues and at the temple. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Because the high priest had been outmaneuvered in argument, an officer gave Jesus an insulting blow, thinking perhaps to restore the advantage to Annas. Jesus was only asking for a fair trial, as we said. Annas recognized that he will, not get anywhere, it will get nowhere with this man and sends him to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is the actual technical high priest. If Jesus is to be brought before Pilate, the legal accusation must be brought by the reigning high priest, Caiaphas, in his capacity as chairman of the Sanhedrin. So you've got to get Caiaphas to come up with these charges and so forth. So John mentions the sending of Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, but doesn't describe what happened at the official trials before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. These events are covered, as I said, in the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, Luke. But John just confines himself to the hearing before Annas, which the other accounts don't give. That's interesting. See, there it is again. So the other accounts don't talk about Annas. They talk about Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. But John talks about Annas and doesn't talk about them. So again, it looks like John is giving material that the others don't give. Then we see further denials by Peter, 1825 through 27. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. The synoptic accounts indicate that the maid at the door pointed out Peter to the group of bystanders and perhaps to another maidservant who then joined her in the accusation. John says they asked Peter, apparently indicating that a whole chorus of accusers began, harass, accusers began harassing Peter. The second denial by Peter was again the easy response to a question so phrased as to expect a negative answer. You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? The third denial was prompted by a general discussion among those in the courtyard, according to the synoptic accounts. But John specifies that the third person to challenge Peter was a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. This question expected an affirmative answer. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? You know, perhaps the fire flared up and the man glimpsed Peter's features more clearly. But Peter would not even admit to being in the garden, since this might associate him with Jesus and contradict his previous denials. Of course, he could also cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Therefore, according to Matthew and Mark, Peter resorted to oaths and curses in his denial of the Lord. And this time a rooster crowed fulfilling the prediction we saw back in Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Well, then the trial before Pilate, the accusation. The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning. So this is early Friday morning. 
what we call Good Friday. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Okay, well, I guess I'll try one more time here because I got this one slide, but uh, you probably won't. Uh... <laughs> okay, let's see. I did put that in there, didn't I? Yeah. But it's not just one thing. It's okay. So they're taking him from number uh, two there to number three, the palace of Herod, the great, the praetorium. Now, there's, again, debate about this one, but most likely it's right there. Uh, and if you ever go to Jerusalem, they'll point this out to you. They'll, it's right there on the wall. It's still on the wall there. It's now called the Tower of David, but I won't go into all the details on that. Uh, so after the Jewish trials held before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which is covered in detail in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus was taken to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who had been appointed... Prefect of Judea in AD 26. Prefect is a Roman technical term for a governor. Uh, Pilate's normal headquarters was in Caesarea. So Caesarea is on the coast, north, you know, uh, north of Jerusalem on the coast. In the palace, Herod the Great had built for himself, but he and his predecessors and successors made it a point to be in Jerusalem on the most important festivals to be available to quell any problematic disturbance. While in Jerusalem, Peter's residence was in what the NIV calls his palace. Pilate's residence was in what in the NIV calls his palace. The Greek word here is praetorion, uh, praetorion, and refers to the Latin praetorian which denotes the headquarters of the commanding officer of a Roman military camp or the headquarters of a Roman military governor, as Pilate was. The exact location is questioned. Some place it at the fortress Antonia adjacent to the temple on the northwest. Well, others believe it's on the western wall. I think most, you know, some, some people put it up here on the Antonia fortress, but most people think, and I won't go into all the reasons why here, that that's where it was probably located and where they took Jesus. The time was early in the morning, probably before 6 a.m. On arriving, the Jewish authorities refused to enter Pilate's headquarters, preferring to stand outside in the colonnade. They wished to avoid ceremonial uncleanness. It says because they wanted to eat the Passover. Well, we've already had the Passover. The word Passover refers not to the actual Passover itself, which had already passed, that was the day before, but to the week-long festival of unleavened bread that followed, like Luke 20, 21 says. Now the festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. So they would refer to the whole, whole festival as the Passover, even though you got two festivals. I mean, you got the Passover, you got the Feast of Unleavened Bread the week following, but like Luke 22, 1, now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover. So you got the Passover, but they, they, they still want to 
observe this next festival so they don't want to be unclean. They don't want to be uh, by contaminating themselves with Gentiles. So Pilate came and going to an unclean place. So Pilate came out to them uh, and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Because the Jewish authorities refused to enter the praetorium, the governor came out to them. When Pilate asked the Jews what the charges were against Jesus, they were evasive, wanted Pilate to confirm their death verdict without further examination. It was clear that the reason why they had brought Jesus to Pilate was their insistence upon the death penalty, which they were prevented by the Romans for performing themselves. Pilate knew what the Jewish authorities wanted, and if they expected a capital sentence to be handed down, they were going to have to speak up and convince him, since as they themselves conceded, they could not legally proceed without him. John saw in the transfer... <laughs> John saw in the transfer of the case of the, Rome, uh, of the, case of the Romans uh, to the Romans, I should be saying, and thus the prospect of death by crucifixion, the fulfillment of Christ's prediction about the manner of his death. I had a slide here, but I won't. This is those places in the Gospels where he says, if I be lifted up, remember John 3, if I'm lifted up, if I'm lifted up, if I'm lifted up, he mentions three times in the Gospel of John and Matthew also. The lifting up is obviously the crucifixion. Well, the examination here, 1833. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? The Jewish leaders brought a number of charges against Jesus. Here's Luke. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. Of these charges brought against Jesus, Pilate concentrated on the charge that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. This is the charge that would bring the death penalty, the charge of treason, that he's king and not Caesar. The charge of treason was brought by the Jewish leaders. Pilate's question with you in the emphatic position shows how absurd he regarded the whole case to be. Are you the king of the Jews? Here's this man brought, you know, are you? <laughs> Jesus seemed to be a most like unlikely prospect for a throne. Jesus answered by a question of his own, designed to determine exactly what Pilate understood by the title King of the Jews. Pilate's answer, am I a Jew? Shows his disdain for the Jewish people. He could care less about the whole matter, clearly unhappy about being dragged into this matter. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you said that I am a king. 
In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. Asking that Pilate was asking from a Roman viewpoint, Jesus replied that his kingdom was of a different sort than Pilate expected. Its source, nature, and methods were not of human origin. Although it would eventually evolve an earthly domain, it would not depend on men to set it up. If one had the proper understanding of Christ's kingdom, then the answer to Pilate's question would be yes. And Jesus acknowledged that Pilate had correctly stated it. However, only those who are on the side of truth could understand what Jesus was saying. Pilate closed the examination by the cynical remark, what is truth? Pilate could have been convinced there is no answer, you know, or more likely don't want to hear the answer. We don't know. He just, you know, it's kind of a cynical thing. But here he is, you know, standing in front of the one who says, I am the truth. But it's kind of ironic that here's the very truth and he's too blind to see it. Let me just cover this last thing and then we'll leave because that'll finish chapter 18. The verdict. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Pilate, after considering the case thus far, made two decisions. First, he declared the innocence of Jesus, found no grounds for an unfavorable verdict, understood Jesus' answer well enough to grasp that even though Jesus affirmed that he was a king, he really meant that he was not a king in a merely political sense who might endanger the Roman Empire. Pilate also decided to pacify the Jewish accusers. He hoped to accept their judgment and thus to calm them and then grant a pardon to the prisoner. He offered them the choice of Jesus or Barabbas, a notorious insurrectionist and murderer. Assuming that the crowd would choose Jesus, Pilate had badly miscalculated for the relentless Jews chose, of course, as we know, Barabbas. All right, sorry to go so fast here, but... Uh...